Hey everyone, welcome back to the Let's Talk podcast, and we're diving back into the James Bond movies with David today. So we'll be talking about Diamonds Are Forever, which came out in 1971 and brings back Sean Connery in the lead role of James Bond, and is again, this time directed by Guy Hamilton, right David? Yeah, that's right. Guy Hamilton's back. Um, it's like they're getting the Bond back together. I think, obviously, Connery's back. Yeah. And Shirley Bossy's back. And uh, bringing back, uh, uh, he directed, I believe, uh, Goldfinger, right? He was the director of that? Yes, the guy who directed Goldfinger. Um, I'm trying to remember, did he direct any of the other Bond movies up till now? I'm not 100% sure. I think this was his second one, if I'm correct. I believe that he only did these two, which is ironic because these are the two that took place in America, the first two. So it's weird that he kind of directed the American Bond movies. <laughs> I think what they were going for, they were trying to get it back to... Um, on track is the Goldfinger, that, that type of flavor and that kind of feel. And to be honest with you, when it first comes on, it does feel like that. It's like you know, we're back to familiar territory. I agree. We're like kind of back into the world that we... It did feel very much like Goldfinger. The cinematography did feel like the Connery Bonds. It kind of felt like, honestly to me, a little bit of a step down from uh, Under Majesty's Secret Service from like a filmmaking standpoint. Yes, yeah, we mentioned last week. Um, I, I think, as you said about Automatic Secret Service, it's a wee bit more grounded, a wee bit more, you'd say, it was it filmic or cinematic? Mm hmm. Yeah. Or, whereas this is a wee bit more glossier, a wee bit more glitzier. Yeah, it just got more of like that Connery feel. Like the a lot of the, it just feels a little bit more straightforward. It doesn't feel like it's going for exactly like what we would expect from James Bond, more or less. Which is, I guess, you know, I guess they kind of felt like at the time when I was reading about it, like Honor Majesty's Secret Service was like a risk that kind of ended up failing in a lot of people's eyes. So I guess they wanted to bring back what people loved from the, you know, the Connery Bonds, and which is why you bring Sean Connery back, right? And they. And you were right. Like it, he came back for the money. They offered him one point two five million dollars to do this role. That's right. An awful lot of money for that time. Um, <laughs> it's still an awful lot of money now, but even more back then. I mean, I years ago, someone's giving me one point two five million dollars now. That's life changing. One hundred percent. Yeah, but for him yeah. at the time in night in I guess it was nineteen seventy when they made him that offer. I'm sure that was huge for him. Yeah, I think um, I heard that it was the biggest any movie star had been given at that time. I 100% mm -hmm. believe that. I mean, the budget of this movie was $7.2 so he got $1.25, and then, you know, but what's crazy is the box office on this, $116 million. So I guess people were really happy that Connery was back, so I guess it was worth the risk. And do you have a Majesty's um, box office balance, Sean? I can get it to get you the exact one. Uh, Just but... out of curiosity to see the difference. So Honor Majesty's Secret Service had a budget of also $7 million but its box office was only 82 million so it that i mean almost 40 million dollars more than that movie and it's only two years later so i guess people that's 40 more million dollars i guess just for connery coming in is the only reason i can think of that so it's at 1.25 million dollars head off i think so i mean i guess it's crazy that the budget is about the same so i mean i know they weren't playing paying george lazenby anywhere close to that so i'm guessing the money had to come from somewhere in the sense that if it's that's included in the budget, I guess it's in the special effects or, or in the cameras because I I really do feel like it was just a step down in the, how the movie looked compared to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I, I thought I mean I know what you're saying about how it looked, but um, they did seem to go to more locations and stuff like that. They did. Um, and it was more kind of 
can I say, glamorous um, locations. You know, I mean, they, they were uh, in the States and they traveled to Vegas and even at the start where it opened, you know, it was very sunny and whereas like Majesty's, I think they were in London, they got grey and then they, they went through the snow. That's true. It wasn't exactly very um, great there either. No, it was uh, definitely not the you know get you. I get you saying much more gloomy. Where this is definitely much more of like bright and sunny days. You know, they ended up on like you know towards the end, it ends in on a boat and everything like that. And whereas in the last one, that was not the case. But I loved them actually going to Vegas in this one. I thought that was pretty cool seeing what nineteen seventies Vegas is, uh, especially since they go to the Circus Circus Casino, which is still there in Vegas. Because I actually used to live in Vegas, so I kind of it's funny seeing how it looked like back then, fifty years ago. I'm sure it doesn't look like that now. No, 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 no. I was just thinking a casino when I was watching it, like how their Vegas was. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the movie casino, um, and it was run by the mob. Yeah, <laughs> now it's just like, I mean, back, it's funny though, because watching all the guys, they're like these southern gentlemen kind of running it in uh, Vegas, and they bring that up in casino, and the guy, what's his name, um, in this one, uh, Wyatt or something like that, or Willie Wyatt, and like his southern accent, I was just thinking that's, yeah, they all did kind of end up in this city in the desert. Overall, what did you think of this film? How did it uh, feel for you uh, watching it this time through? Um, well, I think in the grand scheme of things, out of the first seven, isn't this the seventh movie? It's definitely bottom of the peg for me. It's number seven? You put this dead last? I put this dead last out of, wow. out of the first seven Bond movies. I, I really feel as if they played it very safe, in a sense, that going back to Connery and trying to bring people in who they've brought in before just to make it too familiar. Which I get that, yeah. It is definitely like playing out the greatest hits for sure in this and even like they do spend a lot of time in vegas and that stuff is cool but connery at this point he definitely looked older in this movie compared to the other ones yeah and i was actually gonna say that about him as well is that he, he's only 40 41 years of age when this movie came out and to me he looks a lot older than that yeah, those miles that guys we talked about this on the last podcast is that those the miles on these men back then were just so different compared to nowadays. He does look like he's like almost like 52, 53, not like 41 years old, which I think he was because he was only 31 in the first movie. So, this 10 years, he he aged incredibly. The same age as me now. Yeah, and you don't look like you look like you're 15 years younger than he is in this movie. <laughs> Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> what, what I'm really glad that you do, I'm glad you don't grow your hair out like one of those henchmen. Like, you know, like he, he's bald, but he wants to grow it out long on the sides and he commits to it. I'm just, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I, I won't be trying not to anything soon. But I believe he was wearing a wig in this movie. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he's got the piece on. Yeah. He's got the piece on. Mm -hmm. And, um,. Did, did you recognize anybody else in the movie there? Uh, Mr. Wynn and Mr. Kip? Yeah, those guys. Do you know who Mr. Wynn is? You know, I was trying to figure that out, and it's weird because I, I thought it was uh, not. I thought it was Ned Beatty at first, and then I did looked, and I can't remember the actor's name. So his name's Bruce Glover? Bruce Glover, yeah, I'm looking at that now. And I've only ever seen him in this movie now. I've never seen him in anything else, but do you know who, who is his uh, son? Tell me that his son is Crispin Glover. It is Crispin Glover. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, that's awesome. 
I mean, Crispin Glover's kind of a weird dude, but uh, his I guess his, his father, I liked him in this movie, actually. I, I thought those guys, I, they had a good little uh, back and forth. I enjoyed them, actually. And, I mean, they ended up playing a part in the very end of the movie. They finally got their comeuppance. I think they've been criticized for the way they basically were handled as, as hitmen because they were a bit on the camp side. Oh, they were super campy. Super campy. <laughs> The whole movie is very campy, which I wouldn't put this like I know you said this was dead last. I still kind of like this better than the first two that we've watched because I, really? I, 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 yeah, I know. I kind of enjoy the camp tone. I do. I, that's why I think I'm going to like the Roger Moore ones when we get to it. I kind of enjoyed this movie. It's not as good as I, I still like Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Goldfinger, Wave Thunderball. I like them all better than this, but this would probably mm-hmm. still be better than the first two just because... I, I kind of felt like everyone was having fun. Even Sean Connery. There were moments where I thought he was kind of like, seemed like he was phoning it in. But I did enjoy mm-hmm. some parts of it. It's just, the plot overall could be, it gets a very convoluted with the diamonds. <laughs> it does, yeah. I mean, I, I just found all that a bit hard to follow. Not, not in a way that it was complicated. It just became a bit boring, I thought. You know, and it's just about look, go to one location, go to the next location, you know, beat up these guys. You know what I mean? Meet, meet this person. And it was just hard to follow through that way, you know? Yeah, we don't really find out Blofeld's master plan until until the third act of what he's really even what his goal is for these diamonds, like what he's really trying to do. And then when he does it, it's, I don't know, it just kind of feels forced in a way. And, and Blofeld in general in this movie, this was the weakest of the performance of Blofeld in my opinion. I don't know how you felt about it. <laughs> Welcome to hell, Blofeld. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So that's Charles Gray played Blofeld. So we've had a different Blofeld in every single Bond movie to this point. And over the years, I used to think of myself, why did I not stick to the same actor? But watching this again, I actually like the fact that maybe there's different Blofelds being played in each movie because it kind of like ties into the fact that Bond's on a different mission and um, he meets a different Bond. Even Felix Davis in this game. And Felix Slater isn't the same Felix Slater from the previous movies either. So it's kind of like the only common denominator is Bond, really, and Sean Connery. And maybe, could you say, some of the good guys? You know, you've got Tudor, and you've got M and Mummy Penny. Every time he comes up against, uh, like, an opposing character or whatever, or an ally outside of the regulars, it's played by somebody different. Yeah. Uh, that's the thing that didn't really bother me. I like the, the fact that Charles Gray really brought a different detective. I, I, I just felt like his perform. I, I didn't mind that they changed it because they had already set the precedent that they changed uh, every Blofeld going forward. It's just he felt like his performance just wasn't as good as the previous two. Like Donald Sutherland, obviously, was not Donald Sutherland. <laughs> what am I saying? But in the first. Yeah, Donald Pleasance. And then in the last one, Terry. Uh, yeah, he was great as well. This one just, he felt like just the weakest one. And also, like, now he has hair. <laughs> he never had hair before. <laughs> and then, obviously, he has all the clones. Or, what? well, I guess they're doing plastic surgery to make them look like him. <laughs> that, but, uh, yeah, it seemed to be that he, I don't know if, like, did he have uh, reconstructive surgery too? I, I don't clones after him? I don't know if that was the whole point. Like, that's what they were trying to do was, like, make it, like, maybe that's why he has hairs. He's trying to look different, which would explain it in a pretty good way, actually. But, yeah, I mean, in the opening, the very in the cold open of the movie where, you know, he we think that we killed Blofeld, which would have been, like, a very much, like, an 80s slasher kind of thing where we killed the main villain from the previous movie. But 
no, it kind of ends up coming back, but maybe that would explain it. He wanted to just make all these people that look like him and obviously the voice box so we can make people sound like him. I'm not too sure. Maybe that is what it was. Maybe that's why he changed his look. I don't know if they addressed that specifically, but that would kind of make sense. At least that would fill that plot hole in. Yeah, I I kind of read it, uh, and this was at the very beginning, that the choose of the montage of Bond, beating up all these villains, we will call them, <laughs> yeah. asking where's Blofeld. It cuts the Blofeld in his lair, and he says, we've got to do five. And somebody says, we're not ready or something along those lines, and he says, no, it's too late. So it's almost as if Blofeld knows that Bond is on him, so he has to move now. Now, maybe he's talking about his mission, but maybe part of his mission is that this kind of perception that he's dead, and so he can carry it, so Bond's not looking for him anymore, and he can carry it out, because he knows Bond's looking for him, because I think, isn't there a scene where he's with um, M, and M says to him, Blofeld's dead. Yeah, he says, like, that's it, like, pretty much, like, you know, after the, that cold open, he's back, you know, he does his usual, like, you know, so let's set up what the movie's going to be about. And he said, like, Blofeld's dead. Like, you know, pretty much like, you know, now it's time to move on. Since that's been his arc through these three or four previous movies is that, you know, Blofeld's been his arch nemesis. And now now it's time to get back down to doing other work. Which, I do like how this movie, like, yeah, Bond is, like, they kind of play it out. Like, you know, he's just one of the double O's. He's not, like, the one. Like, you know, yes, we follow James Bond, but, you know, M has a job to do where he's got to deal with all the other ones. And, you know, same thing with Q and Moneypenny. But... Bond's got that charm, and that's what Money Penny falls for. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a bit distasteful for Money Penny to be asking for an engagement ring. Um, yeah. What can I bring you back from Holland? A diamond in a ring. That was cringeworthy. That was, and then you know the, the way he kind of like blows her off, and then she still smiles. I'm like, okay. Like I was like, oh. I mean, it was so cringeworthy. <laughs> He's just keeping her on the hook. <laughs> Uh, and speaking of actually, um, not cringe, but a wee bit more of the campness was when Blofeld screams when the Ebank goes for the gun. Oh. And he's, uh, Blofeld says these screams, you know, search him. And the mouse trap comes out. I mean, that's like something out of Looney Tunes cartoon. Oh, yeah. I mean, other than Sean Connery in this movie and a couple other people, like, I really, I, I have loved the actor. I always get his name wrong. Desmond uh, Luen, from, who plays Q. Is that Llewellyn? Yeah. Every time I love him. I I think he's perfect as Q, and I assume that's why they kept him up until pretty much until he passed away as Q. I I think he's just perfectly cast, and every time he's on screen, I just love him. Like I know he's sometimes they play him off, and like in this movie, they kind of play him off as like kind of like a little bit of like a like a doofus, I guess, in a way. Like when he's in the casino, um, and stuff like that, how he's kind of like rigging the machine. But mm-hmm. I just love his performances. I do. I think he's just a great... I, I really enjoy his work as Q. But as far as everybody else, they kind of seem like not the best line readings as far as the other actors and henchmen go. <laughs> well, as far as I'm aware, I know what might be getting in my head of ourselves here. M um, is the same M, right until he became ill and couldn't do the road anymore. Yeah, they were... Which is uh, right up until the late 70s. Oh, okay. And it's the same with uh, Money Penny and your certain Money Penny. It's the same Money Penny right up until A Beauty a Kill. It's, as I said, they seem to keep that same core of, of, of Bond allies there, you know, as in the British allies. Yeah, it, it, and it's weird. The franchise has always kind of done that, where, like, the certain actors, until they want to leave, like, in those roles, like an MQ and Money Penny, they leave them in their roles until they want to leave. Like, Judy Dench, once we get to the Pierce Bronson ones, you know, she's in Goldeneye, 
but then she's in all the way up until Skyfall, as far as M goes. So it's it's strange, like how those actors they won't swap out until they're ready, just like with James Bond. It's like yeah, you know, these certain core roles will keep with the, these certain actors until either they get too sick and they can't do it anymore, or they just choose to leave. Which is uh, I know I know again we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but it's strange to me that they would reboot the series with Casino Royale where it's supposed to come back to Bond's roots. Yet they keep Judy Dance's in. Yet she was in the previous movies. A bit weird that, but I haven't seen that in the Brosnan ones, so I don't know how I'll feel about that when I get to that stage and move from the last Brosnan into the first Creed movie. I think Judy Dench, I mean, she's always good, but like I, 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 her performances in the Daniel Craig movies are a little bit more elevated than the Pierce Bronson ones. I, I mean, when we get to the Pierce Bronson ones, I feel like Pierce Bronson movies are a little bit more in line with like the Roger Moore movies instead of more less Connery like or less even Daniel Craig like. So she plays her role a little bit different, and it's also not as a big a role as she would obviously in Skyfall. She's one of the main characters, so she's that's right. Judy Dench is phenomenal. It's just like she has a little bit like more of a role, like how the M is in these ones. Like we just bring in a big actress, maybe shoot would have cut her a few days, and that's it. Yeah, it's probably because of the tone of the movies, um, what they were going for with Daniel Craig. This is why her performance, any change was in line with with his and the overall tone of the movie. Maybe they didn't want to risk kind of uh, recasting her part because she was popular in the Brosnan movies. Um, I'm just guessing there. Maybe that's why they didn't want to go all out and change, change one of the most more familiar roles because they had a new Bond. And I know at that time there was a wee bit of a, not kick up, but a wee bit of a kind of long Bond. You know, there was a wee bit of pushback on Craig, I think, when he first was announced. That's true. I mean, yeah, they the Bond's actors, are the, the way that they've always reacted, I feel like it's always kind of the same thing. A little bit of pushback, and then we kind of get used to it. I mean, I only really remember how people reacted when Daniel Craig got cast. That was a pretty big deal. But I don't know how people reacted after Connery left the second time and they cast Roger, well, they first cast Roger Moore. I don't know how the initial reaction was to that. Which is funny what you were saying there about, you know, the Brosnan ones, which, again, I haven't seen. And you said they're more in the end of the Roger Moore movies. But do you not feel as if Damon's Art Forever is very much in being of what a Pierce Brosnan or a Roger Moore movie is? A hundred percent. The silliness and the campness. So after all these years, we sit and we go, whoa, the silly Roger Moore movies. Connery, you could argue, was the first to do it. Oh, definitely. In this movie, a lot of his lines are just one-liners or just being just charming. Like, he doesn't really have the emotions that he had in previous Bond movies. Like, even with the love interests in this movie, like, he doesn't seem to care. <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest laugh-out-loud moments I had in this movie was with, um, she's only in a couple scenes, uh, what, what's her first name? I know her last name is O'Toole. But when they just walk in the room... And they just grab her and throw her out the window. <laughs> like, before you see that she lands in a pool, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Can I be Yeah. <laughs> she and was... then Connery says about the pool, and the, the gangster says, I didn't know there was a pool down there. Yeah, I know. I didn't even know there was a pool. <laughs> then he punches him in the face, Connery. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Did you all leave? <laughs> yeah. I mean, actually... A lot of people fall in water in this movie, <laughs> or in pools, or get thrown in pools, or in the ocean. I, I counted at least four scenes with somebody getting thrown, including Connery, because at the very end of the movie, he ends up in That's the... <laughs> <true>. <laughs> 
Because uh, someone you know, says to it's them. Funny, it's funny you should say that about just about people landing in pools. It, it almost feels as well as if we were stuck in between pools as well, to a certain extent. Um, because I thought that some of the deaths or some of the violent parts of the movie were uh, genuinely like, violent. Uh, like pulling the body from the canal at the, near the start. I mean, you know, seeing the dead body being pulled from the water. And then obviously later on, Plenty too. Yeah. her body in the swimming pool. And then at the end, when the put is it Mr. I've got the news written down here, Mr. Kid, when he actually goes in flames. Yeah. I mean, it's some violent parts of the movie, but at the same time, through the overall kind of tone, is more kind of playful, it's kind of pun in cheek, it's a wee bit camp. So I think that it's kind of goes under the radar, some of those kind of more kind of dark moments, because if I like the overall tone of the whole movie is. Yeah, especially at the very end when he just blows up because he brought the bomb in, you know, in, in the cake. You know, and he blows up just as he's about to hit the water. But yeah, that is that is violent. That is true. And there is a lot of deaths in this movie. I mean, the one, the you know, the fake uh, Blofeld's the one that gets shot in the head, even though his acting about it is a little right. bit, it's a little bit ridiculous. But I mean, that's pretty violent, especially for the time. You know, these movies are still rated PG and everything like that, which, you know, for all the stuff that's in these movies is surprising. Yeah, and it's the fact they actually show it. It's not like you bang and you see your head go back. I mean, they actually showed the, the hole in the head and stuff like that. Yeah. They show a lot. I mean, and it, you're right, though. It's just because I think they just combine it with the lighter tone of this movie. Like, everything is just done a little bit for, like you said, tongue-in-cheek, for laughs. You know, just, like, kind of, like, maybe for, like, the gag. I mean, I'm telling you, that that hair getting thrown out the window, I never laughed so hard at a Bond movie in a while. I just, I just, did, I forgot all about that. Just because they just, gra- they just walk in the room, grab her, and just immediately chuck her out the window. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, I think there was a few love her moments for me, and I I think I think this is about the third time I've watched this movie in the last maybe five years because I watched it when I got the box set and then it was on TV one day um, one Sunday afternoon and I and I'd watched it again and then I watched it the other night so now I'm kind of over the the, the fact of some of the dra- no, dreadful parts you know I've kind of thought to myself how do we go from from Russia with love to this you know really great gritty spy thriller to me from Russia with love Bond didn't even happen in that movie. It could just been a normal spy, and then he had a great spy thriller. And now we've got to this, so I'm kind of past that. And yeah. now that I'm watching it now, um, some of the funny moments I'm waiting on are actually really laughing. Like you said about um, is it Mister Mister Wynn who just blew up the bomb? Yeah. But the fact that he actually puts his arms in between his legs and puts it up in between his groin and he lets out this pitch. Ooh! <laughs> like, I know. He throws him over the side of the boat. Yeah, and just... to see him earlier in the movie, <laughs> when Mr. Wynn and Mr. Kid killed the dentist. Yeah. It's in the desert. He lifts a scorpion and he puts it down the back of his jacket. But the dentist is like, oh! <laughs> 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 I, I mean, no, those are hysterical. And then, I mean, the, the, I, I really enjoyed those two guys. I get that why they get insulted, but I, I had some good laughs at them. And then, um, actually, speaking of Bond in the desert, when he comes out of the the pipe and they're just lifting up, and he's like, "Oh, thanks, guys." <laughs> he just kind of basically steps out. I know I'm paraphrasing there, but he just comes up out of there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, he, but he, yeah, when he goes down, he opened the actual manhole cover and he climbs out. I can't remember what he says either, John. But that was the thing too with the movie. That's what I'm saying. Like. There's so many times in the movie you go to yourself, Blofeld really wanted to get rid of him. You know, he could have killed him on numerous occasions. 
Yeah, I, it's almost kind of an elaborate setup of we putting them in that pit and leaving them there for the workmen to come along and do all the work the next day and not notice that somebody was down and say that way. It, that's one thing that like Austin Powers got perfect was just how they he always just puts them in these elaborate situations where he assumes he's going to die but it's like you've done this like what now four or five times where you've just left Bond alone to die and like assume everything goes to plan and it never does you have a gun on him numerous times and you've clearly showed you have no problem killing anyone else you could have just easily killed Bond at any moment you just choose not to for some odd reason <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to think he's maybe like the Joker and Batman, where he doesn't want to kill kill Bond because he needs him. That that's a possibility. Like you know, we see that Bond is obsessed with getting him. Like that's why M always brings it up to him. It's like it's like that's like his like what do they call that? Like his white whale, like the the one that just he can't yeah. get. And I feel like it's probably the same thing with Blofeld. It's like I I have to kill him, but I have to kill him my way. It's like almost like a respect thing of how because he does bring up all the time. Like there's that Bond mind that I like. You know, like he always kind of like respects how much smarter he is than everybody else yeah yeah but maybe it could be maybe if he's like it's too easy to just to just shoot him yeah i have to to get him a very elaborate way to prove that you say i'm I'm smarter than him yeah it's almost like a challenge for him like because he because think of all these like elaborate plans he's always got like even in this one with the diamonds like who thinks of that (laughs) you know It's like it's got to always be just too convoluted. It just can't be simple for him. It has to be something. Maybe he has a chip on his shoulder. Maybe when he was a kid, his dad told him he was stupid or something. And now it's like he has to prove he's the smartest guy in the world. And Bond is always that one who's just slightly above him, who always outsmarts him. He's like, one day I'm going to get that guy. (laughs) One day I'll get him. Yeah. (laughs) I'll get him my way. That's the only way. (laughs) Yeah. um, Here, what did you think of the faith in the elevator? Um like I've said, when I've watched this before, I've kind of like rolled my eyes and asked God. But see, what's the this time, I actually really enjoyed the fight in the elevator, and it just kept going on and going on and going on. It did keep going. I enjoyed the fight. Honestly, I, I think they've gotten better with the fighting, and um, this was definitely a big difference in uh, the previous ones. A lot less jump cuts. And they were kind of like, uh, actually seemed like they left the camera kind of sit still for a while, which I thought was pretty cool. Which uh, they didn't really do too much in the previous few. I guess they kind of got, you know, 1971, maybe tech's getting a little bit better. Because I know the movies start to look a lot better once we get to the Roger Moore ones and they start to do a lot more stunt work. Yeah, it just seemed to be better choreographed than the fight scenes in the previous movies. Say, maybe to the skate that with the jump cuts. Um, as I said, it can be very jarring. Yeah. Jump cuts, but this one here, you can actually make it what was happening. Yes, exactly. You definitely could like make out the action, which I I appreciated because it definitely makes it a little bit more entertaining than when you could just see every cut. Um, and it looked like you know they got Connery to do a lot of the work himself, which is good because you know I mean I guess they paid him all that money and he was probably willing to, but it definitely does feel like a weird in between Bond movie. Like they kind of threw it together because Lazenby left and maybe they weren't ready for what their future is going to hold, and they only signed Connery on for one movie, so it's like, let's make this movie, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do next. Yeah, I'm not totally sure if maybe they went for Moore after this, to do the one, oh, sorry, not after this one, after A Majesty's. I'm not sure if they went for Moore and they couldn't get him. You know what I mean? So it was like, well, in the, in the meantime, as you say, we'll just get Sean Connery to do this one here, and then we'll figure it out after that. Exactly. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'm sure Connery was like, this is it, you know, and that, that, we can come back after this, this is the last one. Oh, we and hoped. He for it. And I think he was just trying, he was just enjoying himself. 
Yeah, it did seem like he was having a good time. Like, it definitely, like, there were moments where it kind of seemed like he wasn't, like, you know, maybe he was falling in it, but for the most part, it seemed like he was enjoying himself. It seemed like he was definitely in on everything and uh, willing to do the work, which I definitely appreciated because it definitely does kind of feel like a, a lame duck Bond movie in the sense it's between Lazenby and Moore, and, you know, he kind of already had done his bow out. Even in this, though, they don't really give him, like, a conclusion like they would nowadays, like, in No Time to Die, the way they gave Daniel Craig his send-off felt like a real send-off. Like, here it's like, ah, it's just the end of another chapter to Bond. Yeah, um, but it goes back to what we were saying about they're, they're just following the same old formula, and because the last movie had that kind of more of a bleak ending, they just kind of left it open to, you know what I mean, he's, he's won again, he defeated Blofeld, he's got the girl, you know what I mean, and then the music clicks in. And again, John, maybe they maybe they consider bringing them back again. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not too sure on exactly what happens. I mean, I guess when we get to the next one, maybe I'll be able to do some more research. But I'm I'm not too sure what the plan was. It, it, just the fact that he got that much money makes me think like it was kind of like a desperation move. Like they had Lazenby all lined up because they originally offered him a five film deal, and then he backed out like right before the premiere. So and. These movies feel like they're quick turnarounds, like one, two years, let's get this out. It's not like nowadays, like, we haven't had a Bond movie in three years, and before that, it was like, you know, now we get them like every four or five years. Back then, it was like every year or every other year. Yeah, uh, back then, it did seem to be turning around about um, a lot quicker. Different times now, I don't know, I just feel as if now, the actors and directors, it takes an awful lot to make a big blockbuster like that now, that they want to take a break. And they don't want to dive back into maybe a, a Bond, another Bond movie. They want to take their time. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. It's just, back then, I feel like the Broccoli's kind of ran it more like a business. Like, these budgets, like, nowadays, you just wouldn't get that, where a movie has, a, you know, I mean, that's not a small budget for the time of $7 million, but if a movie's making, like, $82 million, the next movie usually would get, like, at least double its budget because it did such a good job profit-wise, but they still, like, seem like they were, like, pinching pennies the whole way, you know? Well, this seems to be an anomaly with, um, as we said last week about sequels. I've never really looked into Bond sequels and their budgets um, and whatever um, and how that operated, but I do know that when the sequels kicked in in the late 70s, early 80s, that the thought was was that the sequels budget was usually sliced to half, so strange how they did that back then like i was even when i was looking at the superman budget it's just not like how they do it now it's the the business model is completely different it's they really didn't give sequels like crazy money like they do nowadays fast x had a budget of 340 million dollars and that's just based on the fact that they expect them to make that back back then it was like we want to have as big of a profit margin as possible and i think the reason why back then i'm talking like early 80s uh maybe late 70s when the sequels really started coming out the reason i think the reason why the budgets were half was because that the sequels usually made about 50 percent of the originals usually so when you look at it like that that's right about half the budget that makes sense i i guess audience were it's just people i guess weren't invested in franchises back then like they are now because now that's all that really makes money is ip and franchise back then people were still going to see original films in theaters and really the big money makers were the movies that would do good at the oscars like this is 1971 the next year was the godfather and the godfather was the highest grossing film of 1972 yeah, which is which is why I say there. I think Bond is a bit of a, an anomaly, and that in that sense, of people kept going back to watch Bond. 
kept going back. And I suppose if you're investing seven million dollars in the movie, of course that's a risk. But even if you're making eighty million, I mean that's some profit. Even if like, and this is even before mass advertising, I think as well. You know, mass advertising didn't come in until the mid seventies. So you see, you hear a movie now. I say, for example, it's cost three hundred fifty million to make. We're spending the same amount on, on marketing. Back then, um, they were probably only get, uh, spending half of the budget on marketing, um, but that didn't come even until the mid seventies. So I don't know how much we're spending the marketing more in the mid seventies. Um, but you're still got a hell of a profit margin there um, if you're spending seven million on a, on a movie and making back eighty million or a hundred million more day. That's true. That is definitely. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I didn't look into what the marketing is. I, nowadays, I think the rule of thumb is uh, a movie has to double their produ- production budget to get back to start making a profit. So that's why everyone's been talking about Fast X needs to make like a worldwide budget of like almost eight hundred million dollars just to start getting money based on that. You know. So yeah, it just feels like nowadays the uh, certain things just like the way that they are with. With movies, it's just very different. We get IPs and like horror movies, like because like, horror movies always turn a profit because they just made on the cheap. But that's really it. We don't get like mid-level or you know mid-budget movies anymore in theaters, at least, which is a shame. I, I just know from obviously with Jaws being the first summer blockbuster, that was the first real movie to kind of like uh, invest in marketing campaign and advertising. Not saying that they didn't advertise movies before then, of course they did, but the mass kind of like. Um, advertising worldwide, uh, television spots, you no know, main up on billboards, you know, things like that. Um, Jaws was the first movie to do that. And I think they spent a couple of million on it. So if you look at Jaws, I think Jaws' budget was something between seven, eight to eleven million. Nobody exactly knows there's a run over budget. So if they spent two million on a budget of say eight million, you know, there, there's even just a quarter, right? And I actually remember, and I'm just going to memory here, I remember when Jurassic Park actually came out in the early 90s. I think that budget was around 60 million. And I remember at that time they were, were reporting that the actual advertising was the cost the same as the amount of, uh, it took to make the movie. Really? And that was 30 years ago. Yeah, so 60 million to make Jurassic Park and then 60 million to advertise it. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that... Uh, I'm sure it just shows you within that space of paying 12, 20 years, you know, the, 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 they, they see these blockbusters, the studios see the advertising just as important as the actual movie, the of the movie itself, they get a profit back. And that's where we are today. I mean, advertising, I really do feel like is a huge thing. And you could just see when a movie doesn't advertise well, that it misses at the box office. People need to be aware that these things are coming out because, or else they're just going to fail, especially nowadays. Like, movies really have to make their money on their opening weekend. We don't see legs anymore. Movies aren't in theaters for, you know, they used to be in theaters, like, for, like, a year. I think I remember reading, like, Home Alone was still, like, (laughs) near the top of the box office by the summer of 1991, (laughs) which is crazy, or 92. used to be, like, if you look at the old blockbusters in the late 70s and early 80s and things like that, um, the, the movies that usually done the best were the movies that had legs, right? Yeah. And that all kind of changed towards the, the end of the 80s, where basically it was a, it was a, a make as much money as you can on the first weekend. And, it was a, and after that, if you can get your money back, I think after that's profit. And most movies then used to, used to drop off. You know, a lot of movies, it's very rare for a movie to have legs. 
Very rare for a movie to stay like number one or stay in the top top movies for weeks on weeks on weeks or even just a whole summer now. Um, but obviously, there's a lot more. I'll say there's a lot more competition. If you look at maybe year like 1989, which had the likes of Batman and Ghostbusters 2 and Indiana Jones, and, um, I'm not sure when Lethal Weapon 2 came out that year, didn't it? Yeah. All these big movies came out around the summertime. So, so I don't know if there's more competition now, but it just seems to be that these sort of says build a little ahead around it, get bums and seats as many as possible the first couple of weekends, and then I don't even have to drop it. But I think also what, what changed them maybe keeping it out of the cinemas as well is home home video. Um where um there was movies that actually they you would have to wait like maybe a year from the coming VHS. And, and what they were doing was we're fast tracking that they were making these VHSs available uh towards the end of the year, you know, and that was the next big thing you build up that hit like so the Batman VHS, you know, coming out I think in November, I think in eighty eight. It was, only, it was only in the cinemas in what, June? Yeah, no, that, and that was a big deal. I mean, I read about that. It was like a really, like, that was it. They wanted it out for the holidays, for 1989, because that was the biggest movie of the summer of 89. And, I mean, I don't remember. Obviously, I wasn't alive yet, but I don't remember what the cost, like, of a VHS was. But, I mean, I remember people, I was listening to a podcast recently saying that VHSs were really expensive, like, when they first came around in the 80s until, like, the mid-90s. Because when I started buying VHSs, yeah, the price point U.S. dollars was like twenty bucks, which is kind of like you know we've increased now in new release 4Ks and Blu-rays, but it's still around the twenty dollar range. But I heard like Disney stuff was like sixty dollars U.S. back in the day. Yeah, I've heard that obviously across in the states and stuff. I've heard of VHSs uh, costing like eighty dollars, a hundred dollars when they first came out. That's um, crazy. <laughs> I I have no memory of that myself. Um, I do know that VHS over here, the first VHS I ever owned original VHS that was bought for me as a birthday present was Batman and that was around 1990 but I guess that was probably at most 20 pounds um, you know British pounds but that's at the most yeah I feel like probably just like anything in the 80s and stuff and you know new technology as we go on a little bit we get becomes more accessible than the price starts to drop but you know CDs were around there also and I remember DVDs when we started to get First run DVDs were still VHS was still the main thing, but then once DVDs kind of started to grow, then the price of VHS has dropped, and even DVDs once by like the early two thousands were down like that twenty dollar mark too. So, so that's what I'm saying. So I think that's the anticipation then of, of the actual home media, and that's probably another reason why a lot of people went back and watched movies more, maybe more in the seventies and watched them again and again because they didn't know when we were going to see them again. That's true. That is the big deal. Like that, I never really like. I've thought about it, but I've asked my dad about stuff like that, and he's like, "Yeah, he's like, we had four channels, like, <laughs> and most of them had sports of the news on, and you have one show, and every once in a while they'd show a movie. But if you missed it in theaters, it was gone. <laughs> you know, that was it. it. You weren't gonna see it unless they re-released it in theaters. There was no home video market at all. We definitely are spoiled nowadays in the sense that, and I guess that's probably just to tie it back in the bond. Um, why you were probably able to get away with swapping out actors and stuff like that. It was probably like going to see like how the Indiana Jones movies are as like a serial kind of thing, like going to see the next episode in uh, Bond's, you know, his career. Yeah, which is why I'd say, you know, it's testament to just how popular the Bond character was mm-hmm. back in the, you know, 60s and 70s that people wanted more. You know, even if they were following the same tropes, you know, people didn't mind. You know, if, if, if the last one was, what, 69, this one was 70, 71, 71, so you're two years away there. If it wasn't on the television, 
and maybe you watched the Romantic Secret Service and you like it, or maybe you watched Goldfinger, and what was that, 1964 or whatever it was? Yeah. And you like that, and you, and you, and you maybe didn't watch a couple of ones in between, and you're like, well, we'll go watch this new Bond movie. Whereas, like, you know, if maybe if you had, had, had the older Bonds to your fingertips, you, you, you would think to yourself, ah, oh, we've got to come on TV, or we've got to come out in DHS. You know, but, but I think maybe that's why um, maybe a lot more people went for the movies back then, and, and why these movies, when you look at budget compared to profit, it's such a big margin there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like movies just back then just made so much more money than they do nowadays. Like, yeah, there's some movies, like last year we had Top Gun Maverick, and that was like a big deal, but nowadays... If you don't make that money in that first weekend, it's usually like a 60% drop-off weekend to weekend, and then if it bombed, it's gone, and then it's on streaming. And now, we don't even have, it used to be a 90 days where it had to be between physical or home release, I guess streaming release nowadays, and now they cut it in half to 45 days. And back, like you said, with Batman, or I remember reading about E.T. also, which was a big deal. Like, that was a one year, I believe, until it came to VHS. And it's crazy. Like, that was it. Like, nowadays, we you can stream a movie, if it didn't do well in theaters, 45 days later. That's it. I actually heard that Spielberg didn't want to release E.T. on VHS. Really? Now, that's why it took so long. They had to actually convince him. Wow. They not they release it. That's the most part he had. He did. He wanted it to be a cinema experience, and that's it. Wow, yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, in the early 80s, I guess that was probably the time when Homer, because, you know, we had the VHS versus Betamax thing, and then probably by mid-80s, Betamax was gone, and that was, uh, now we're just on to VHS, and that's when the home media market took off, and now it's kind of like in the decline, I guess, which is unfortunate, but... You know, we had the heights then where people had VHS collections and that they were watching all the movies that they wanted to at home. I mean, that's how I became a film fan in general was when watching movies at home. Yeah, well, the same year, I mean, myself, watching movies on television and being able to record them off the television even before I knew you could buy an original. But, I mean, uh, same as yourselves are, you know, we have VHS, store, you know, uh, rental stores. And I always remember that the, the movies were in there before you could actually buy them. So, so there was a period between then that you, that you could go and rent them there before you could even buy them. So it wasn't like the rental stores got them the same time that you could buy them. Could huh. be wrong there, but I'm near certain that the way it was. Yeah. The period that. Yeah, I remember those days. I mean, you could buy, I remember you could rent them and then like, you actually usually you couldn't buy them until a couple weeks later. And then towards the end of VHSs, it was just like, now you could, I remember they started doing like, I don't know if you guys had, like we had Blockbuster Hollywood video and stuff like that. But once we got kind of towards the end of the rental era, it was like guaranteed to have it in stock to buy or rent, and then then they just kind yeah. of fell apart. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You could buy them as well. Yeah. So that was kind of the end of that market. Uh, it's an ever changing thing with the movie business because I mean, this is fifty two years ago now, and it's a totally different world from what it was. Yeah, it definitely was a totally different world. But um, I think me and you've talked about this briefly before. Is that to me, Bond back then? is what your Marvel is now. You know what I mean? And then when we move into the 70s, you get the big blockbusters, you get the Spielberg blockbusters, and you get your, you get Star Wars, and I feel as if the Spielberg blockbusters and, this, and the Star Wars movies, even though there was only three of them back then, they kind of took over the mantle of Bond, what the Bond franchise, what Bond was. Yeah, pretty much. They pretty much took over the, like, this is our big release of the year, big studio release, and then you got to come back in a couple of years to see the next chapter. 
And yeah, Star Wars was the one that really changed the film industry. Like, you know, I don't know if it's for the better, but that they, it really definitely changed not just sci-fi, but movie watching in general just switched after that in 1977. And even obviously we talked on, uh, in the comments about uh, Moonraker and how like that was trying to capitalize on the Star Wars thing. Everyone was trying to. I think uh, The Last Starfighter is another one that's like a Star Wars kind of knockoff and everybody had to have their piece of that pie. And there were some Bond knockoffs. You can argue that like there was like movies like um, The Italian Job is kind of playing around with uh, some aspects of Bond. Yeah, well, I mean, like Alfred Hitchcock himself, who um, I think he was offered to direct Dr. No, but he said no. <laughs> um, then he made his own kind of James Bond ripoff, North by Northwest, which is an excellent movie, by the way. I love North by Northwest. It's one of Hitchcock's best, 100%. It is. But like the last few movies, then it's really funny once we're going to the 70s. Bond movies that were being released as Romance of Moonraker are mirroring <laughs> the popularity of certain genres in the 70s. Yeah, so you, you'll see that as you go along in, in the seventies. Yeah, I'm looking forward to diving into the Roger Moore ones. Yeah, I just want to say that I think that the, there were some good one-liners in it. John. Great one-liners. <laughs> in the, the Moore era, like for example, he says to the Bond girl, "What was her main name?" The Bond, the main Bond girl, what's her name again? You, uh, the actress's name is. Let me get her correct name because so, Jill St. John as Tiffany Case. I was like Tiffany Case. Yeah, I did. He says there um, about the, the the color of her hair, pervading the colors and cuffs much. Yeah, that was funny. Um, actually, I wanted to bring up about her because uh, he did it. He, they kept bringing up her ass in the one thing when he put the cassette in her uh, bikini bottom, and he's like, he said something about her. She's like, really nice cheeks. Uh, I think actually Blofeld felt that. <laughs> what a shame. Blofeld, that is one of my best, our favorite names. I wrote, wrote it down here. He says, nice cheeks too. If only they were brains. Yep. <laughs> and she almost. Also, of course. Sorry, I was gonna say, and that was, that leads actually when she actually tries to do something good for Bond and switch out the cassettes, and she ends up putting in the right one again. She's like, "What did he say to her?" He's like, "He called her an idiot, I think, or a moron." I, I, I think he called her a twit. Yeah, you dumb twit. Yeah, that's what he said. He said you, you put the right one back in again. You, you twit, or you dumb twit. Yeah. That's right. But yeah. it, there was also an obligatory Sean Connery slap. The Bond girl as well. Of course. He had to get one in this movie. <laughs> yeah, you had to have that in there. And also, like, when he wore the fake, what do you call them, fingerprints? Yes. He, he phones Q and says, that was great, ingenious Q. And Q tells him the guy who's pretending to be has escaped and killed a guard. And it goes back to the phone and, and he's like, Q's like, Bond, you there? And Bond's already left. Yeah. So the guy who's pretending to be goes to her apartment, remember? Yeah. And he's standing outside with the hands around his back. Yep. As if pretending that he's kissing someone. It's so dreadful. It is. It was a lot of that in this movie, but it was it was hysterical. There was a lot of funny moments like that, little moments, a lot of definite great one-liners, though. and A lot of Connery's dialogue in this movie definitely was leaning into the one-liners not as much emotion as he had in previous bond performances it was very much tongue-in-cheek a lot of his one-liners and stuff i mean he, he used to say the one-liners in the previous bonds it's been a way since i lost the counter he wants to be honest with you the earlier ones but he would have these cool one-liners and they were tongue-in-cheek but in this he was saying it maybe with a wee smirk on his face 
you know, it was a wee bit more self-aware, I feel, in this one. Um, and, and see when he went to the moon, moon buggy as well. Uh, oh, my. Scene, that's basically where the movie starts to lose me. You know, it's, it's just where it's really moving into a real farcical territory. I mean, that scene is funny, watching a regular car chase that thing. <laughs> It's just, it makes no sense. I mean, this movie also has a, a, a mini submarine that ends up taking out an entire oil tanker. <laughs> so you got to buy into that. <laughs> yeah, and the oil tanker for me is a poor substitute for the volcano. Oh, yeah. I was wondering, though, when they had the moon, when they were, like, you know, filming that moon scene, um, you know, I wonder if that was kind of like a play on, I mean, I don't know if they were that self-aware back in the 70s, but, you know, those rumors that Stanley Kubrick shot the moon landing on just the soundstage, and I was like, oh, you know, I could see it when they got, you know, when black and white like this. Yeah, exactly. I'm wondering where they'll have a wee take out. Yeah, I was just wondering if, like, those rumors were popping up back then or not, or if that's just something that, you know, conspiracy theory that popped up all those years later, but I was like, like, I could see them kind of making a little slight jab, backdoor jab at, um, you know, Kubrick here. But I, I don't know if that's what they were thinking or if that's just me looking at it through 2023 eyes. I always thought that was funny. But yeah, that moon, <laughs> that moon buggy thing was ridiculous. <laughs> and, then, and then not only did Blofeld start getting new faces, at one stage he actually dresses up as a woman to escape. Oh yeah, he got out. And then he said uh, when she got in the car, he's like, I was dreading to making this long uh, ride alone or something like that. That's just the ridiculousness of, of this of this film, Nick, to be honest. But um, I, I have to say, I did like to enjoy the score. And score? I, did, I do like the, the song as well. Yeah, the Diamonds Are Forever theme is actually one of the ones that I, I always think of too because the way it's performed is uh, almost very similar to how uh, the Skyfall theme is kind of sung like almost like a similar tone it kind of extracts yeah i did watch a uh, documentary on the bond songs um a couple of months ago through every single bond song and how they were created and things like that right up until skyfall i think i'm talking about skyfall they wanted shirley bassey back obviously because of how popular goldfinger was and wanted something in the same vein as that but when barry wrote it and i'm uh, not sure if she signed the demo but we probably heard it he didn't call me Bradley, he didn't beg it at all. He stormed out, he walked out. Really? He didn't like the lyrics. And they basically told Bassey that God has seen it. It's not about diamonds. <laughs> it's about men's private parts. I mean, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> so when you listen to it and it's just what you're singing about, that's what he's singing about. It's not actually diamonds. Well, because now I'm going to treat go- the men's private parts like they're diamonds. I expect mine to be treated that way at all times, so that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason why they call them the family jewels, isn't it? I, I, I never put two and two together. That does make sense. I mean, I guess that without them, you ain't going to have a family because that's impossible. So <laughs> it definitely makes sense. Diamonds are forever. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And James Bond, that's what he's known for is, you know, swooping some ladies off their feet and showing them a good time. Yeah. I mean, Felix Leiter makes a lot of jokes to that sense in this movie. Basically just knows what Devonair Bond is, you know. He's like, ah, you know, he's... I mean, Felix Leiter, it's like, there you have that friendship. I always like that they, you know, obviously the actors change. But I always like their, like, little friendship between a CIA agent and an MI6 agent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very good. I actually, it's one of those things where I wish that uh, Felix was in more of the movies, had more to do. Me- Not so much this one, but in the other movies, it's kind of like, I like him being there, as you say, as an ally. Um, and it's funny when they were talking about like making universes out of James Bond and stuff like that. I'm very surprised they haven't actually done a spun off of like Felix later. We can just call it later. I, it's yeah. perfect. And now, I, I mean, I I didn't know this, but um, Amazon bought MGM. 
So Amazon now owns like the rights to all the MGM properties, including Bond. But technically, the Broccoli family still owns and makes all the decisions to Bond. So that's why we haven't gotten any like spinoff shows on Amazon yet, because the Broccoli family is like really protective of what they do with the Bond franchise. And because like, yeah, there are so many routes they can go. And I would love a Felix Leiter, you know, like a 10 episode miniseries. I think that would be great. Yeah. I just don't understand this kind of pushing of trying to change Bond. Now, I understand he's got to evolve for the times to a certain extent. I mean, I wouldn't expect, we talked about Sean Connery slapping the Bond ones, right? Yeah. I wouldn't expect to see that now. I can understand why I'd want to move away from that, that new stuff they got. That's understandable. Yeah. But I don't understand this changing the essence of what Bond is or 007 is. When they, when they could have a show about double weight or double two, yeah. or Felix Nader, or a show about two, or what about a prequel about M? Yeah, we don't need to, like, you don't have to mess around with the James Bond character. That character was written by a guy who doesn't, who's not even alive anymore, and you have so many other options to go. There are, we know that 007 yeah. is just another 00. If you want to explore other 007s and have maybe James Bond pop up in those shows or movies or whatever you yeah. want to do, you have the option, just you don't have to mess around with James Bond. And the best about it is, is that say you didn't make a show, a Bond pops up in it for an episode, or maybe just a cameo. It wouldn't even have to be it could be any actor. Yeah, exactly. You could just it you could just play around with that. And I remember people saying also like it'd be cool to get some of the old Bond actors in there just to play different roles and stuff like that. Like I found out this week that Sean Connery was considered for the role in um, Skyfall as the I think Albert Finney ended up playing the actual role at the yeah. end of the movie, but. Uh, people what felt like that yeah. that would have distracted the viewer because they'd be like, oh, that's Sean Connery. But I feel like if you do little things like that, like a little wink at the camera, I think more fans would appreciate it. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, well, let's see in this era now, John, we're talking about franchises and multi multiverses and things like that. Bond has such great potential there. Oh, for yeah. Me, for me, I, I really think it does. And I think there's a lot of fans would be quite happy with that because I think, I think what happens is when you start messing about with the main character, it divides the fan base. Yes, exactly. And that... if you take another character who the fan base make and do something with it, you're all going to be on board because the potential is limitless. You can do anything with them. Yeah, there's so much you can do with so many other different characters and other characters in these franchises that people have an attachment to. But you just don't I, – I, I don't think that – I think that's almost sacrilege to play around too much with James Bond. He is what he is. He's been written this way forever. And people still come out for James Bond movies. There's no reason to play around and make too many drastic changes to his character. You know, you do what Daniel Craig did, and like, you know, have a like a darker version, a more real life version of Bond. But you still have to hit the tropes. I feel like for James Bond, just because of the long running fans of him. Yeah, my, my attitude is is that there's part of me that thinks that he's he's got those tropes. There, he's got those personality traits. He, he's he's not there as a model citizen. He, he's not there as a stand up guy to look at. You know what I mean? And and kind of like aspire to. You know, he's got his flaws. To me, is that that he's the one constant. Right, so uh, what I mean is, I'm not saying that I, I'm sure there's outdated views in the 60s and 70s. You can see us for the day, that's fine, but that doesn't mean that he can't um, be a chauvinist man. Again, doesn't mean you have to like it. Pe people are their characters, and people have flaws, and you can play off that. 
But what can change then is everything around him. Is the world we live in now. The world we live in now, as you said earlier, John, isn't the same world we lived in or people lived in in the 60s and 70s. So as I say, the character can generally stay the same, that he's this kind of, likes a drink, likes a smoke, maybe a bit of a womanizer, a bit of a chauvinist. But the world around him has changed as well. Exactly. And I think, as I say, I'm not, I haven't seen the, the Pierce Brosnan in months, but I know that Judy Dash does call him once he's Stage your Assassin's Dinosaur 007. Yes. You know what I mean? And that was only back in the 90s. Yeah, well, that's pretty much what the character was. The 90s was a big shift in how our world perspective was. And it starts, uh, when we get to the Pierce Bronson ones, I'm very curious to see what you think of them because he starts out so good in Goldeneye and then it, it just drastically declines almost into super camp territory that they, it's almost like they did a Batman and Robin, the Batman begins on that where it's like we have to reboot it and it has to be more in the real world because that world that he lives in is just so outdated. Too fantastical as well, which is kind of strange when you were, when I'm thinking about it now, it's kind of like Diamonds here as well. Like, uh, living that die, as we'll see, could potentially be either one or two on the most grounded um, movies on the spectrum, maybe one or number two on the most grounded out of the ones that he done, which is funny then because this goes down that road of being very kind of, you know, cabby and flamboyant and just ridiculous. I have the image of the couch exploding in my head still that I'll never forget, that blow-up couch. <laughs> I don't know which more oh, movie. at the end of Living That Die? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, you know, it's been a way, I think it's a few years since I was living that day, but um, if I can remember, it's probably one of my favorite um, Moore Bonds, if not my favorite Moore Bonds, is living that day. Yeah, I, I'm, that's kind of where my, that's my biggest blank spot on Bond is more is because I haven't seen those in a, at the very minimum 13, 14 years, and that might even be shooting low. So I'm going into those not blind, but, you know, pretty blind. Yeah, well, just know your expectations, and then you may enjoy it more. Yeah, I mean, I think I will. Like I said, I kind of enjoyed this one. It seems like a little bit more than you, so I think that it's definitely... Uh, I think I might get more enjoyment out of him, but we'll have to see. I actually think that Damage Off River is the type of movie that, you, that could be on TV on a Sunday afternoon, and if there was nothing else on, you could sit, switch your brain off, and watch it, and you could enjoy it. I also think, to a certain extent, it's very kind of kid-friendly that they could sit and watch but for, for a Bond movie, if you were to ask me, look, you know, it wouldn't be the first Bond movie I go to. Do, do you know what I mean? There's a plenty of other Bond movies I would go to before that. It was pretty low, low down on my, on my list of Bond movies. Um, and it's the same as, as I said in last week. It's like, if you're going to show a Bond movie to someone, you're, I don't think you're going to show them Diamonds Are Forever. If somebody had never seen a Bond movie before, you're not going to say, what's Diamonds Are Forever? Because it may put them off Bond for life. <laughs> No, you pull out, I feel like you either pull out, like, Gold. I think you, if you're going to pick a Sean Connery movie, you pull out either Goldfinger, I know you're a big From Russia With Love guy, you know, I think those are the two you pull out from the Connery era to show somebody. Yeah, exactly. One, you, 100%. Yeah. Guys, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's show. We'll be doing these again. Um, David's going to review all of these with me, which is awesome, because I really appreciate him being here with me. And if you guys like this podcast, make sure you give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You know, tell all your friends. If you like the video, make sure you like it, share, and subscribe. Also, tell all your friends. And we will be seeing you next time. Bye.